the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is SRN News. Faith Talk 570 WTBN Pinellas Park and 910 WTWD Plant City. It's time for Verse by Verse. Sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries. What does it mean to repent? When the Bible speaks of repentance, it is referring to a change of mind that always leads to turning from sin as we turn to God. And it's important you understand that because there are many Bible teachers today who will tell you that repentance means nothing more than an intellectual change of mind. God wants to change you from top to bottom. One of the most important Bible words that talks about change is the word repentance. It's not a word you hear a lot in the world today, even in the church. People don't use it very much anymore. I dare say a lot of Christians don't even understand what the word means or how it is used. That's why it is so important to study the Bible in a detailed and systematic way. Today's message in the series on how God comforts the depressed is all about repentance. I really hope you understand the meaning of this essential Bible doctrine at the end of the message. You don't want to miss it. You may even want to get a copy of this message and listen to it again. Our speaker is Steve Kreloff, pastor of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. Here's Pastor Steve with today's message on Verse by Verse. In the year 1937, a well-known Bible teacher and pastor by the name of Harry Ironside wrote a book on the subject of biblical repentance. He called it Except Ye Repent, and the reason that Harry Ironside wrote this this book was because he was alarmed. He was alarmed how many preachers of his day were excluding the doctrine of repentance in the message of the gospel. He wrote these words, The doctrine of repentance is the missing note in many otherwise orthodox and fundamentally sound circles today. Now, if the doctrine of, of repentance was a missing note in the pulpits, at least in many pulpits in the 1930s, then we could say it is virtually non-existent among the majority of Christian preachers today. Many evangelical churches never, ever mention the subject of repentance, and yet the, the message of repentance was a central element of the gospel that Jesus preached and the gospel that the apostles preached. For example, In Matthew's Gospel, chapter 4, right after our Lord's temptation, he begins his ministry. Do you know what his first words were? The first recorded words of the ministry of Jesus Christ were these in Matthew 4, 17. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus began his ministry by calling Israel to repentance. Later, when the Pharisees questioned why he ate and drank with sinners. You know how Jesus defined the purpose of his ministry? When he wanted to clarify the purpose of his mission, he said this, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. If you want to understand what I'm doing here with sinners, it's this, I'm calling sinners to repentance. 
The message of repentance was also a reoccurring theme in our Lord's preaching. That's why one day he spoke to some very self-righteous people who thought that a certain group of, of people had died in a catastrophe because these people were greater sinners than they were. And so in their self-righteousness, they, they spoke of that to the Lord and asked him to explain it. And here was his response, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. In other words, what he's saying is that these people weren't any greater sinners than, than you are. Everybody needs to repent. Don't think that this happened to them because they were really sinful, but you're not. Except ye repent, you'll all likewise perish. And not only was repentance at the very heart of our Lord's message, but he commanded his followers that when they were to preach after his death, burial, and resurrection, they were to preach the gospel of repentance. He told us this in Luke chapter 24. This is really the Great Commission, the expanded version of the Great Commission telling us what it is that we're actually supposed to tell people. In Luke chapter 24, beginning of verse 46, after it says, he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day. So we are to preach the message of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. But what do we do with that? What do we tell people they need to, to do in terms of responding to that? Verse 47, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. The very heart of, of our message, the apostles' message, was to tell people that Christ had died for their sins and that they, in order to be forgiven, were to repent of their sins. And you know what? The apostles understood that. That is exactly what they preached. Remember on the day of Pentecost, Peter stood before thousands of, of grieving Jewish people who came to the realization that they had, they had indeed rejected their Messiah. And with, with grieving hearts, they said, what should we do, brethren? And Peter, speaking for all the apostles, said, repent. Repent. There's only one thing to do, repent. And then he said, you ought to be baptized because you have been forgiven for your sins because you have repented. A little later, Peter told another crowd of Jewish people in Jerusalem, therefore repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away. Peter preached repentance. The apostle Paul emphasized repentance in his preaching too. In Acts chapter 17, he is confronting the Athenian philosophers, philosophers from Athens, and these Greek philosophers, so pious in, in their knowledge and looked down upon Paul, Paul said this to them. He concluded his message to the philosophers. He said, therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring that all people everywhere should repent. God, God turned his head away from dealing with you in judgment up until now. But God is telling you. He's telling everyone everywhere to repent. That was what, what Paul said to the Athenian philosophers. Paul also said to the uh, elders from the church at Ephesus when he met with them and he was explaining his ministry to them as he was going back and saying, this is how I was with you. He, he told them how he went from house to house and he proclaimed the whole counsel of God. And then he narrowed in on what the heart of his message was. He said, I told them to that they needed to have repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. That's Acts chapter 20. That's what Paul said. From door to door, house to house, repent towards God and have faith in Jesus Christ. So 
in, in light of the overwhelming abundant evidence that repentance was a central element of the gospel that Jesus and the apostles preached, what does it mean to repent? Now, we touched on this last week, but I want to take us further. What does it actually mean to repent? When the Bible speaks of repentance, it is referring to a change of mind that always leads to turning from sin as we turn to God. And it's important you understand that because there are uh, many Bible teachers today who will tell you that repentance means nothing more than an intellectual change of mind. And the reason they say that is because the, the Greek word for repentance that we translate repent is made up of two Greek words, which means to change and the mind. So you put it together and you say to change the mind. But that's always a bad way to define a term because words are defined based on how they're used in context. That's how we do it today. You figure out what somebody means based on how they use that word. So you, you can't isolate a word and say, well, it's two Greek words that make one Greek word, so it means to change the mind. Changing the mind is only, is only part of it, and that's important you understand this, because some will say, well, changing the mind means that I, I used to believe this about Christ. I, I thought he was just a man or just a prophet, but now I believe this. Now I believe the truth about him, and so that's all there is to repentance. Or I used to think I really wasn't a sinner, but now I've changed my mind about that, or I've changed my mind about God. Uh, that's only part of it, but that's not the totality of repentance. Repentance is not simply an intellectual altering of our minds. It is not simply that I, I now have a new perspective on my sin or God or Christ. Repentance is always preceded and always involves a God-given grief and hatred over our sin. It is a grief that causes us to turn away from our sin as we turn to God for salvation. That's how the Bible uses repentance. And the proof that, that this is exactly what Scripture is talking about involves forsaking sin and not simply a passive change in mind. The proof of that is provided by the Bible itself. I'd like you to turn. It's important you look at Acts chapter 26. Acts chapter 26, I think, is the most um, critical passage in terms of defining that it is forsaking sin, that it involves fake, uh, forsaking sin. And I'll tell you why this is such an important passage of Scripture. Because in Acts 26, the Apostle Paul actually, in ex by explaining his ministry to King Agrippa, explains that repentance involves forsaking sin. And whenever you have a biblical definition, you have the best definition because it carries biblical authority with it. This is the most significant definition in the Bible of repentance because it's actually defined for us in the text of Scripture. And let me show you what I mean. In Acts 26, verse 18, Paul is making a defense before King Agrippa, and in doing so, he is explaining his ministry, that God had called him to do this. And he says, concerning the Gentiles, this is his ministry. In verse 18, he says, here's what he was to do, to open their eyes so that they may turn, watch this, from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. So Paul is saying to King Agrippa that his ministry called to proclaim a message that would turn people from, what did he say, darkness, which is another way of saying ignorance and sin, to the light 
which is another way of saying Christ and obedience. And he clarified it by saying that what he means is they were to turn from the dominion of Satan, that's their evil ways, and, uh, and turn to God. Now, that's what Paul said his ministry was. He said forgiveness of sins comes by that, turning away from sin, turning to God. But watch this. As he continues to speak to King Agrippa, he actually gives some clarification. He gives some defining statements. And he says in verse 19, So, King Agrippa, I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision. And then he goes right back and explains what it, what it was. He said, but kept declaring, verse 20, both to those of Damascus first and also at Jerusalem and then throughout all the region of Judea and even to the Gentiles. Now, what is it, Paul, that you that you proclaim? That they should, watch this, repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. Notice how Paul, Paul, in explaining his own ministry, he says that the turning from darkness to light, from Satan to God, he calls it, right, repentance. He defines it for us. He just stated what it was. Now he uses the term. So, folks, that is a uh, very, very important statement in the Bible because Paul himself defines for us that repentance involves turning from sin and darkness to Christ and to the light. So repentance is more than an idle change of mind that, that has no impact on our behavior. It's, it's far more than that. It is always preceded by sorrow for sin and always leads to forsaking of our sin. Now, having said that, Paul gives us the, the most significant definition because it's a biblical inspired definition of repentance. I, I want to say that the best, the best comprehensive statement and, and thorough explanation of repentance that I at least have ever read comes from the pen and ministry of Dr. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who is a very well-known uh, Welsh expository pastor and Bible teacher. And here's what he, what he said. He wrote, repentance means that you realize that you are a guilty, vile sinner in the presence of God, that you deserve the wrath and punishments of God, that you are hell-bound, it means that you begin to realize that this thing called sin is in you, that you long to get rid of it, and that you turn your back on it in every shape and form. You renounce the world, whatever the cost, the world and its mind and outlook as well as its practice, and you deny yourself and you take up the cross and you go after Christ. Your nearest and dearest, and the whole world may call you a fool or say you have religious mania, you may have to suffer financially, but it makes no difference. That is repentance. Now, that's a great quote. That's a very significant statement because he just, he just broadened it for us. That's what it is. Now, with this as our background and a little more understanding perhaps than we had last week, I think we're, we're ready now to approach our study in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. So let's turn there because 2 Corinthians chapter 7 is dealing with the subject of repentance. In the final verses of chapter 7, Paul reveals how God had restored his broken fellowship with the Corinthians because they had repented. They had, they had indeed uh, repented of their sin. They repented of the way they had treated Paul, and they did something about it. And as a result of this renewed fellowship with the apostle Paul, uh, God brought Paul out of depression. He tells us in verses 5 and 6 that he was depressed. 
He says in verse 5, For even when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were afflicted on every side, conflicts without, fears within. But God, who comforts the depressed, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And what he means is that he was waiting in Macedonia, very fearful, very down, very depressed, fearing the worst that that Titus was going to get there, having met with the Corinthians and, and tell Paul that they don't like you anymore. They've rejected you. They want nothing more to do with you. And Paul, Paul is really, at this point, sort of a nervous wreck about the whole thing. And he admits that he was depressed, but he tells us in verse 6 that God is the one who comforts the depressed. And what this passage really is about is revealing to us how God comforted, strengthened, encouraged the depressed apostle Paul and brought him to the place of rejoicing. He did rejoice. He rejoiced with the Corinthians uh, in their response because verse 7 says, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted in you as he reported to us your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me. So watch this. Now, this was a man who was depressed. He said, so that I rejoiced even more. Paul said, I was depressed, but I'm no longer depressed. And the reason I'm no longer depressed is because of what Titus told me about the Corinthians' response. And that's in three phrases. They long to have fellowship with him again. What great news. They, they didn't reject him anymore. They said, Paul, come back. We want that fellowship restored. They mourned over the way they had reacted to him in his strong letter. They actually wept over that. It grieved them that they actually treated the great apostle Paul this way. And now they were zealous in their, in their desire to obey what he had taught them. Everything had changed. And Paul said he was rejoicing now. The God of all comfort indeed had comforted Paul and brought him out of depression. Now, in light of this, what Paul does in these last few verses is he uses himself as a living illustration to reveal how God encourages believers when they're down. And that's what we want to look at, and that's what we have been looking at, as Paul gives us several principles about how God lifts us out of depression. We've already looked at one of these principles, and we began to look at the second one last week, and we're going to continue with that this week. But the first principle God uses to encourage depressed believers is simply he renews broken fellowships. And folks, basically what this simply means is this. It means that you and I know one of the most disheartening things in life is to have broken fellowship, is to have the anguish of a severed relationship with someone you once loved, someone you once walked with, someone you once were close with. Now it's, it's broken. I can't think of anything more painful in life. I can't think of anything more painful to be estranged from someone that you still love, that you still have feelings for. On the other hand, I don't think there's anything more exhilarating and thrilling than having that fellowship restored. And that's what Paul is so, so excited about. That's what Paul experienced. And you and I must never lose hope that God is going to deal with people who are estranged from us, that there would be repentance, or maybe that, that it's in our lives that we need to repent. Because I, I have found that whenever you speak about repentance, people think about all the other people who should repent towards them. So we want to keep that in mind, but never lose hope that God can restore a relationship that's been severed by sin. We never do that. He did it with Paul and an entire church. He can certainly do it with, with us and those who we are distant from even now. But how does he do that? How does God bring about this restoration of fellowship? Well, Paul tells us, and this is where we 
where we sort of uh, got into and left off last week, he not only restores broken fellowship, but he does it by this. He produces repentance in sorrowful Christians. That's how he brings people out of depression. Those they've been estranged from come back to them, and it's a wonderful experience. And he tells us this, and I'm just going to read it and then comment a little bit on it, but then really get into verse 10. He says, For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that the letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while. I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. Now, obviously, the recurring theme in these verses is that Paul's letter, known to us as 1 Corinthians, had caused the, this church great sorrow. And Paul said he's glad about it. And we looked at this last week and we concluded that he was not glad because they were sorrowful per se. He, he didn't rejoice because people were hurting. The sorrow that, that they had led them to repentance and that's why Paul was glad. In other words, Paul's joy was over their repentance. It's just that the sorrow had to precede that repentance. So he was glad about that. And in verse 9, he states that God was behind their sorrow. This didn't just happen. God was behind it. He said it was according to the will of God. Literally, it's according to God, meaning God was in this. In other words, God had worked in their hearts and God had brought them to the place of grief over their sin that led them to repentance. And that's always the way it is. Nobody musters up repentance on their own because we are wicked sinners, dead in sins and trespasses. If there's any repentance in an unbeliever's heart, it's because God has granted them repentance. Unbelievers cannot repent in and of themselves, just like unbelievers can't believe in and of themselves. We're dead. God does the first, uh, God makes the first move and he, he grants repentance. And that's what Paul is saying here, that God worked in your hearts and brought you to faith. But as a believer, he did this in your life because that's the norm in a believer's life. We repent. Now, in verse 10, Paul clarifies that the sorrow that they experienced was different than the sorrow that non-Christians experience. And that's what I want us to study a little more today. There's more on my heart to share, and then we're going to get into verse 11. But let's look at verse 10 again, and I want to focus on this. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God, produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. Two types of sorrow are presented in this verse, two types. Number one, you, you have the first sorrow is the sorrow of God-given grief over our sin. This type of sorrow, Paul says, produces repentance, which he says belongs to the realm of salvation. Literally, in the Greek language, it does not say leading to salvation, though that is certainly true. It, it, a better way would, would be to put it this way. It produces repentance, which belongs to the realm or the sphere or the dominion of salvation. What he's saying is that repentance goes with salvation. It's, it's part of the, part of the package. And either initial salvation at the time of our conversion, we had to repent, or else it also belongs to salvation's realm in the sense that, that the repentance we have gives on giving, uh, ongoing proof that we are true believers and have been saved. 
Now, the other type of sorrow is what Paul calls the sorrow of the world, meaning this is the sorrow experienced by non-Christians. That's, that's what he's talking about. It does not lead to salvation. It eventually, says, leads to death because it, it has no redemptive value. It, it doesn't do anything for us spiritually. It, it, it doesn't produce repentance. It doesn't lead to salvation. It may relieve us of some tension and stress, but it has no spiritual benefit in our lives. That's what he's saying. And, and eventually, if people just have this sorrow and don't repent, they will die in their sins and go to hell. It leads to death has no redemptive value. If we were honest with ourselves, we would admit that a lot of our relationships have been damaged or destroyed because we weren't willing to ask or offer forgiveness and because we were not willing to change our behavior. Pastor Steve has been telling us in this series how important it is to show godly sorrow for what we have done and to repent of our sin. We can't just keep acting like nothing is wrong. Is today the day you are hearing God's call to repent of your sin and come to Him for forgiveness and salvation? Don't put it off for any reason. If you would like to talk to someone about your relationship with God or get some counsel on how to make things right with somebody else, why not give us a call here at Verse by Verse? The number is 727-239-0306. Someone will pray with you and help you from the Word of God. You can find help on our website, versebyverseradio.org. You can even give a gift to this ministry on our website or over the phone. We are really thankful that you've been with us today. Until next time, this is Jerry Pruden for Verse by Verse. Deepening your faith. Sincerity is not what saves you. Jesus is who saves you. So may I ask you today, have you decided to trust Jesus as your Savior? These were hours of decision, and this is an hour of decision for you today. Faith Talk 570 and 910 WTB. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.